I recently got a puppy. So on this episode, I'm going to talk about it. podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 82. And for episode number 82, I wanted to discuss a big life change that's happened in my life. And I alluded to this a couple of episodes ago when I discussed overwhelm. And that was, I got a puppy about three weeks ago now. So I got a little uh, yellow lab puppy. His name is Huxley, and he is now going on three weeks since I've had him. So he is about 10 weeks now when I'm recording this episode. And obviously, these last three weeks have been a huge adjustment period for me. And there have been a lot of positives. There have been a few negatives which I would like to discuss in today's episode. So what I want to tell you is 10 things that I've learned from my puppy in the first three weeks of having him. And in particular, 10 things that I've learned from kind of a career standpoint or even a life standpoint in working in healthcare and how some of these things can be applied to either the patients that I see currently in my practice or just individuals in general outside of a healthcare setting. So the first real tip or thing that I've learned from my puppy is that reinforcement wins over punishment almost every time. And so what do I mean by that? Reinforcement and punishment are taken really from the field of psychology, and they relate to desired or undesirable behaviors. So reinforcement strategies are used to increase a desired reaction. So these are rewarding positive behaviors or removing something bad for a positive behavior. So these are known as positive reinforcements. So giving something desirable or negative reinforcement, removing something undesirable with the goal of increasing a desired reaction or behavior. So in terms of puppy training, for example, if your puppy sits, you want to reward them either with praise, a toy, or a treat. And in terms of doing so, you're attempting to improve that behavior, that sit. And the thought process behind that is the more that you positively reinforce a behavior, the more that you will then get that desired behavior. Whereas negative reinforcement might be in a real life example, if practice goes well, we're going to take away wind sprints at the end of the practice. Wind sprints is considered to be something that's typically 
not that fun to go through as a team. So if we have a really great practice, everybody listens, everyone works hard, we're going to remove those sprints from the end of the practice with, again, the goal of increasing the desired behavior, which is the team comes together, the team pays attention for the entire practice. Now, the flip side of that is using punishment strategies. Punishment strategies are typically used to reduce an unwanted behavior. We can, again, use positive punishment or negative punishment. Positive punishment is adding something undesirable. So, for example, in puppy training, when I've discussed with dog trainers as well as researched puppy training, one of the things they never suggest doing is if you're doing crate training, using the crate as a punishment. So puppy does something that's undesirable, you put them in their crate and you might yell at them or punish them in a way that then they associate the crate with something that's undesirable. So positive punishment is adding something undesirable. Going back to the team aspect, practice doesn't go well, they get wind sprints at the end of practice. Negative punishment, if we use the sporting example again, is the removal of something desirable. So player isn't playing well, we remove ice time from them in hockey. So we take away ice time, which is desirable to them. We use this as a form of negative punishment. In the research, I believe that reinforcement strategies, particularly positive reinforcement, is focusing on, again, rewarding positive behavior with the goal of increasing that. And in focusing on the positive, we typically get better outcomes. Now, what this has taught me in terms of my clinical practice is really just focusing on the positive, trying to set people up for success rather than focusing maybe on what they're not doing. One of the common themes that we see in clinical practice is, for example, if I give maybe rehabilitation or exercises for home or some homework, for example, and people come in and they haven't done that for whatever reason, they feel badly. They say, oh, I haven't done my homework or they feel as though I'm disappointed in them for that. And I think that one of the things that I've learned through this last three-week process is if I'm trying to get a desired behavior out of my puppy, it's so much more effective if I reinforce him positively. So maybe using that in clinic and reframing that with patients and focusing on the positive or maybe just breaking it down and seeing where they went wrong and then attempting to reframe the positives out of that may get me my desired behaviors from my interactions with my patients. And a lot of this has to do with how I interact with my patients, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So lesson number one, positive reinforcement wins almost every time over punishment. Now, is this always the case? Certainly not. There are exceptions to every rule, but in the context of what I'm going through right now, seems to be pretty accurate. Number two is be a leader, not a follower. Now, I know in our healthcare system, particularly right now, there is a big push for collaborative healthcare, which means that the clinician and the patient collaborate together to come up with a plan to help them get better. And I'm certainly not suggesting that by being a leader, you have to claim that you're an expert, claim that you're a fixer, claim that the patient can't get better without you. It simply means that you're a leader. And what leaders do is they find out how to get the best out of people. They actively listen 
they collaborate, and they continually reevaluate. And so when you're trying to lead, you're always actively going through these strategies. You can't take a template for every single person that you come across, whether that's in business, whether that's in healthcare, whether that's in patient interactions, and apply it to everybody. For example, in the puppy world, not all dogs respond in the same way. You really have to figure it out on the fly. And we talked about the reinforcement and punishment strategies before. Some dogs' temperaments are a little bit more gentle. And if you try and be overly punishing to them, it won't go the way that you suspected. They respond really, really well to positive reinforcement. And so you have to learn from your puppy and you two aren't speaking the same language and you're getting to know each other. And so this is really at its core, the concept of leadership, leading through body language, leading through behavior and trying to teach from a place of observation and looking at what the puppy does and looking at what people are doing or telling us and then becoming that leader in whatever way we need to. So number two is be a leader, not a follower. Number three, which I've learned very, very quickly is things are not linear. And while I've already known this for a long time working in the injury rehabilitation field and seeing the highs and lows of injuries and how injuries will often undulate and we think that things take this linear progression and if it's going to take four weeks it's just going to get progressively better over those four weeks this is in fact um, very rare in that things almost never rather move in a linear direction and dog training is no exception for example when i brought huxley home he had three great days in the house he then peed almost every day in the house for seven days straight and then he went four days without having an accident seemingly out of nowhere and so if I look at that I just have to again focus on the positives and move continue to move in the right direction and what was happening as well was there were other things that were happening in him being accustomed to the house that were positive and what I was really doing was just focusing on what was going wrong and I think that in injuries and in pain a lot of the time we do have a tendency to go there we might be exhausted we might be frustrated we have all of these emotions surrounding our injuries and our pain and when something's not going right and there may be glimmers of positivity within that that we can focus on and understand that things are not linear however as long as we get to the end result that is what really counts so tip number four, and this is one that I had to learn quite quickly as well, and again, context is everything, and this by all means doesn't mean that this is 100% of the time, but if there's a mistake or lack of progress, it's probably my fault in that if the, the puppy's peeing in the house or the puppy is biting or nipping, it's probably something that I'm doing that's causing him to react in that way. I am either not taking him out quick enough I am having a body language that makes him feel as though he can play I have not set expectations properly which we'll talk about a little bit later and going back to that example of the clinical practice and patients not doing their homework being a prime example I think a lot of the time that's my fault as well the reason being is 
again, we have to communicate with each other as to what we're willing to do. If somebody has no time to do any exercise, they have no interest in doing any exercises, they don't like or enjoy the exercises that I'm giving, they'd rather go and garden instead and I'm making them do weight training and I haven't got any buy-in and they're just becoming non-compliant as a result of that, a lot of that onus is on me to have a conversation and open dialogue with my patient about where they're at and what we're doing that is working and what we're doing that is not. And there may be some give and take that has to happen on both ends. However, I think a lot of the time in healthcare particularly, will say the patient isn't getting better because they're not doing their homework. And my question to you as a clinician or as somebody that's gone through an appointment is really why are you not doing your homework? Is it because you're the patient and you don't like it? You're not an active individual. You'd rather do something else. Is it that you're a clinician and you feel so strongly that they really need to do it and you're getting frustrated that they're not? I think there are a number of questions that come out of that. But what I've really found is that when I step back, look at the big picture as to what I'm doing, the vast, vast majority of the time, this has been my own fault and I have to take onus for that. So I think that's really been an important learning lesson for me that I'm going to be taking forward in both my professional and personal relationships and looking at, okay, what is the role that I'm playing in that? Especially when we get frustrated because I think if somebody's frustrating us, the first thing that we do is look to them and maybe cast blame or deflect the situation away from us. And I think that if I look inward first, there might be a lot of lessons there. So tip number four, again, is if there's a mistake or lack of progress, it's probably my fault. Tip number five, and this was one that I learned in a very, very stressful situation, which is try and find solutions where there are perceivably none. So a couple of days ago, Huxley was in the yard, and then all of a sudden he wasn't. And what he had done was he had crawled underneath the neighbor's fence, and now he was in the neighbor's yard, and he was attempting to just crawl under all of the fences. I live in a row of townhouses, and he was just trying to get under all of the fences. The neighbors weren't home, and so I can see him in the yard, and I'm trying to get him back into my yard, and I'm trying to coax him with treats. That's not working. I tried to pull him underneath the fence that he climbed under, and all he was doing was just screaming and barking, so it just clearly wasn't working. So there's no way that I can jump an eight-foot fence, hold a dog in my hand, and then jump over with the dog on the way back, and... After probably 10 minutes of trying to coax him back, what I ended up doing was I went back to the hole and I started digging this hole from where he went through. And I dug a really big hole, jumped over the fence, and then eventually after about three to five minutes of coaxing him back to the hole, was able to push him through, block the hole, and get him back. The interesting thing about this is I went through probably, this went on for 15 minutes before I just decided that this was what I was going to do. And the solution, when you look at it, is very simple. But the situation was very stressful. And I think that sometimes in really stressful situations, we lose sight of the fact that the solutions are right in front of us. And we can apply this to all aspects of life, whether it's injury and rehab, whether it's 
personal relationships, whether it's something that we're really, really frustrated with. However, just because the solution's in front of you and the solution is simple, it doesn't make the solution easy. So I've had a number of conversations about similar situations. For example, if somebody's in a job that they really don't like, the solution, if they've been struggling in their job, in their career, might be that they need to quit their job. And so the act of quitting your job can be simple, but that doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean that there's going to be fallout from that. It doesn't mean that it's going to take a short amount of time to recover. However, if we look into the next thing that I've learned from my puppy, it's that things may just be that simple. So for example, if we want the dog to sit, we train sit over and over and over again, and eventually the dog sits on command. And sometimes we're always looking for the answers. We're looking for the answers in the context of a clinical setting. I'm looking for answers in treatment or a patient's looking for answers to get out of pain. And they're searching for other answers. So sometimes they'll come in and they'll say, hi, Connor, I've tried acupuncture, injections, medication. I've tried 20 different things and I'm no further along. I feel the exact same way. Sometimes the answer is right in front of us and it's a simple answer, but it doesn't mean that it's an easy process. And so sometimes it might be something that you've already been doing, you just need more of it or you need it in a different way or you need it in conjunction with something else to get you to where you need to go. And I think there's just a huge lesson in that, in that when something isn't working, a lot of the time we automatically look outward to the next thing, whether that is professional relationships, personal relationships, something that we're struggling with in life, something that we're struggling with in work. It may just be that we just need to tweak the thing that we're already in to get us to where we need to go. The combination of trying to find solutions where there are perceivably none, and it may just be that simple, has been a really big eye-opener when I'm trying to communicate with this brand new puppy and don't have any kids and don't have any experience um, in raising uh, really anything. And the other thing that I've really learned uh, during this process is shout out to all the parents that are out there that have raised kids because this has just been unimaginable how parents are able to raise um, one child, let alone multiple children, after having gone through this process. So that's just a bit of a quick uh, aside. So props to all you parents out there. So the last two, try and find solutions where there are perceivably none, and it just may be that simple. The next tip that I've learned from my puppy is that Puppies may be the most prime example of mindfulness. Puppies literally live in the moment. You have a one-second window to teach them something, and then they move on. And as somebody that's trying to train a puppy, your frustration lasts longer than theirs. They've already moved on. So if a puppy jumps or nips at you, you've got one second to try and attach their behavior to some type of reinforcement or punishment. And if that one second window has passed, then 
they're living in the moment. So they've moved on and you still may be really, really frustrated with the behavior that they've already done. And I think that there's something to be said for that. And I'm still learning as to exactly what that is. I'm not sure exactly what it is. It may be we need to shift our perspective when we are going through something that's really, really frustrating or somebody's frustrating us. It may be that I need to focus on gratitude more. It may be that I need to stay the course of whatever I'm learning, regardless of whether it's frustrating or not. But in somebody that's been practicing mindfulness for many years, it's given me a new perspective in that it has helped define or redefine what living in the moment truly is by looking at another individual that is doing it. And so whether it's learning to not sweat the small stuff, forgiving more quickly, I think this is a really, really important lesson to be learned. There's something to be said about living in the moment, and puppies again are that prime example of mindfulness. So just as we're getting now into the end of the list, we've got three more things that I've learned from my puppy. Number eight is your patients, your students, your mentees. If you're not in healthcare, you're not a teacher, the people that you interact with, everybody is like a dog. We're all like sponges and we'll soak up whatever you give them. Why I think this is so important is when People look to people in leadership or people in a relationship. They're going to model themselves continually after what you give them. So I can educate people in a certain way. I can provide them what I believe to be true. I can be very rigid in my teachings. I can offer no flexibility outside of my teachings. And people will learn in that way. And that doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be positive. They're going to soak up that information. They're going to do with it what they please based on a myriad of factors that include their history, their prior experience in that particular setting or not. Or I can really find out what makes people tick. I can treat each patient as a unique person. I can treat each student as a unique person. I can treat people that I mentor as unique individuals, find out what they really, really enjoy and what makes them tick. Try and use tip number one, positive reinforcement as much as possible and try and get them to be mindful and enjoy the process to try and get better outcomes. Again, this has been a really, really valuable lesson in that what I was believing my puppy needed is not truly what it needed. And when I was able to look at the information that I was giving him and soaking it up, reflect on, again, probably the majority of the time when things aren't going the way that I want them to, it's probably my fault. And then reframing that, applying what I believe he needed at that time is when things started to turn the corner his behaviors got better, it became more enjoyable for me, and then we were able to move on to the, the next thing. And this might be, this next point might be one of the most important points in this whole process. And a lot of the things that I've talked about with positive reinforcement and dog training isn't coming from me, it's coming from people that are far more well-versed in this topic 
than me that I've been talking to over the last month or months as I have prepared to get a puppy. And one of these lessons actually came from a former student of mine that is really focused on dog training now. And he said two things to me that are really, really important for me and that stuck with me throughout this whole process, but not only in respect to dog training, but just other elements. The two things are setting expectations is everything and always end on a good note. And these are just great clinical lessons in that setting expectations for your puppies, setting expectations for individuals that you interact with, setting expectations for employees or partners What are your expectations and then being consistent with them? So, for example, if you put your puppy in a crate and your puppy is continually barking and you take them out of the crate as they're barking, you're telling your puppy that barking is acceptable. Barking gets you out of the crate. Where if you don't take them out of the crate, you're telling them that barking is not acceptable to me for no reason right now and that if they then settle down and you take them out of the crate you're reinforcing the positive behavior of being settled and calm setting that expectation is really really important because whatever way you go is how that puppy is going to learn the last point here and always ending on a good note is things aren't always going to go perfectly they're always not going to go your way whether it's a meeting that's been really really frustrating whether it's a dog training session that's been really really frustrating trying to get one little positive outcome at the end of the process can do wonders for the next process so The example that I was given is, look, if you're doing a dog training session and you're trying to really nail down a new skill and it's really not going well, then just end with a sit. End with a skill that you know your puppy knows, reinforce that positively, and then you're done that training session. So whether it's an argument, a meeting, try to come back to something that is positive or something that's been taken away from that, I think has been... Really, really great advice, not only for puppy training, but this is something that I've been trying to do since I received that advice in a professional and personal setting as well. So tip number nine, setting expectations is everything and always end on a good note. And then the last tip that I've learned from my puppy is stop and smell, well, everything. From the time my puppy wakes up, he is in the moment. He is mindful. He is walking around the yard, literally smelling everything, literally chewing on everything. I think there's something to be said for this. In all of the chaos uh, and busyness of life, to stop, pause for a moment, reflect, establish priorities, and return back to what, whether it's your the purpose of what you're doing, getting back to what you love, trying to get back to positive outcomes, maybe looking at professional and personal relationships and seeing that things aren't maybe necessarily as bad as they are. I think there's something to be said for just stopping, reflecting, living in the moment and being mindful. And I'm sure that there are so many other things that I've learned 
Again, this has been a really, really short period of time, and maybe I'll do a follow-up episode a little bit later on. But while this has been by far the most difficult thing that I've uh, gone through in terms of just trying to learn patterns of behavior and doing something that I really don't have a lot of experience in and truly becoming a student again, the positives definitely outweigh some of the more frustrating moments. So I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. As always, I hope that there's been some value in it for you. My question for you this week is, if you've had a puppy, what have you learned from your puppy? I know that over the past couple of years, many, many people have gotten new pets. So I'd love to know in the comments below. And I hope that you all have a great weekend, folks. And we will see you in the next one.